0: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.
1: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley.
2: This is my fishing hole! What do you think, you're fishing over here? Of course, I'm Yetla. Buenas noches. This is my first time in Barcelona. I'll call in for $1,000. Hey, don't I know you? Changing 1000? White chips, Rocket? Eh? Hey, aren't you?
1: I'm Hitler!
3: <laughs> nice little sheep, sheep, come on, sheep, get in the cage. Come on, you pretty little sheep, aren't you? Okay, okay. Oh, come on. Little sheep. Sheep. Shell! <laughs> Shell! You're ungrateful, swine! I am.
0: I'm not sure how German that accent was. Oh,
3: do you think we're really trying to do
2: the German here? Is this
0: <laughs> fair point?
2: You Mugen where you should have Krugen. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Welcome back to Frosters. I've seen a guest. <laughs> Justin Williams is here. Yes, that was me as Hitler. Uh, that's I, was, I typecasted myself as Hitler. Justin, what's up, man? We're doing Hitler today. It's great. I figured with you know November, the elections. Let's distract ourselves with something even more. <laughs> distressing and anxiety-inducing like Hitler.
2: There's no fascism on anybody's mind. Exactly. So,
3: you you know, we know so much about this guy already, his childhood, his infancy, you know, what he likes, love affairs. He went through a painting phase. There's countless documents and interviews. His staff and generals did. But the allure of Hitler is still everywhere. And a perfect example of this enduring intrigue is a set of diaries discovered in the early 80s that had supposedly been written by Hitler himself. Millions of dollars were spent procuring these fake Hitler diaries and millions more were spent publishing them and spreading them from Europe to the United States. I mean... Justin, first-class experts in their field of Nazi memorabilia, of Hitler's handwriting, all authenticated these documents. It wasn't until after they started publishing that skeptical parties did real analysis, forensic analysis and testing, and then quickly realized, oh, yeah, fuck my life. These are fake.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, in black history, there's this thing called the Willie Lynch letter. Uh, where it's a guy talking about the process of like breaking a slave and a lot of contemporary African-Americans, especially Afrocentrists, have been like, see, this is the white man's plan the whole time. But then uh, the professor Jelani Cobb read it and he's like, hey, half these words and like locations don't match uh, the early 1800s when supposedly this was written down. Uh, but yeah, it's very similar. So thing. people are doing this.
3: This is a thing. People try to fake historical documents all the time and like rewrite history in their own way. You know, it's crazy because everyone wanted to believe. And I think that's what kind of surprises me so much. They want to know where this monster comes from. Like, is there not enough stuff in the world to, to like take up your time that you're so focused on Hitler and, and what his motivations were and how did he do it? And so much of that kind of obsession with someone that, disgusting is what blinded these these experts and these authenticators from the blatant truth that was right in front of them.
2: Yeah, man, they've done sort of studies on this about conspiracy theories. The more evidence that uh, conspiracy theorists are presented with, the more that they usually entrench into the conspiracy. So a good example of this would be this guy that put up an anti-gun control meme with Hitler's image on it. And it's the caption read, The best way to conquer a nation is to disarm its populace. I let him know that, number one, there's no record of uh, Hitler ever saying those things. And then number two, you know, aside from the Nuremberg laws that made it illegal for Jews to own guns, actually what Hitler did in practice was arm millions of Germans. (laughs) And uh, yeah, you know, he actually... uh, Turns out, put guns in the hands of millions and millions of Germans. And the guy said, I was like, so this isn't real, right? And he said, uh, it's the response. He goes, "Uh, I don't care if it's real or not. It happened.
3: It's the world we live in.
2: But Justin, you know, when we break
3: this story down, you're going to hear a few things. We'll have a forger. That's our main fraudster here. His mark, that's this guy, Gerd Heidemann. That you'll meet in a little bit here and basically everyone else who got duped by the work of the fraudster but first i want to provide some context where did this story of the hitler diaries even come from okay it's the end of world war ii at least getting very close to the end and hitler is making his final kind of requests he's going to kill himself. He's meeting with his top aides and his scholars, and he's getting his personal papers together. And one of the things that he wants to do is ensure that these documents that he has, these these plans, these papers, survive so that the future generations could restart the new Reich. He, of course, blamed everyone but himself for not winning the war, of course. But he was like, I'm, I'm going to be out of here. I want to make sure, though, that there still is a Nazi future. And so they called this final mission to save Nazi party members and to get them to safe locations in different parts of Europe and stuff and to include Hitler's precious documents and his treasures, Operation Seraglio. And this was Hitler's way of ensuring his future. Now, his plan was to fly a lot of these documents to a village uh, called Berkestagen. Now, Major Friedrich Gundelfinger would pilot the plane with his personal effects. However, he couldn't leave at the exact time they needed to avoid the Allies attacking. And since he left later than some of these other planes, his plane was shot down and crashed near the Czech border in West Germany. Everything presumably in that plane crash was burned.
2: All they found in the wreckage was a single pair of Birkenstocks. <laughs> I just joked on my
3: watch. <laughs> <laughs> the plane, the plane, all sandals, perfect. <laughs> um <laughs> Who established the story and the, and like the 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 truth that we all agree upon? You know, we live in an age where we're always questioning where the source of information is. And at that time, and we just did a bit in the beginning where there were different stories about what Hitler was doing after the war. Was he actually dead, or was he a hermit in, in a fisherman in Italy?
2: That village in Italy sounded a lot like North Jersey in the nineteen seventies. Was... or as we kind
3: of did it at the Jersey Shore, <laughs> and then. You know, was he working at a casino? You know, was he a sheep herder in the Swiss Alps? There were all of these things, these stories coming about. So the British government had a vested interest in figuring out what happened. Now, they hired a British intelligence officer named Hugh Trevor Roper, a.k.a. Lord Dacker. Yes, Dacker, like the like the Dackery. <laughs> and, you know, I should note also, I just saw online, I think in Ireland... Because they don't distinguish how much of a piece of land you have to buy to own uh, to become a lord or a lady, any of us could become lords or ladies. So I think we should all we should all just do that. I think that makes sense, right? We should all be lords or ladies.
2: I actually, uh, when I was in college, I became Lord Daiquiri at Tropical Liqueurs in Columbia, Missouri. That's where I was <laughs> became lord of the Daiquiri. I like every time you do a specific
3: like that, our, our numbers spike in Missouri. So that's always good to see. <laughs> so Lord, Lord Dacker, and I'm just going to have a trouble not saying Lord Dackery this whole time. <laughs> he, was, um, he was a research student, an intelligence officer, and he was put in charge of what they called Operation Nursery. And that was basically so that they would figure out empirically what had happened in those moments at and right after the war. He went on to write an entire book called The Last Days of Hitler, and his accounts were cited around the world. Now, this is right after we're looking, we're talking like the 40s and 50s here, where he was able to do all this research and put this book out. Now, The thing to keep in mind here is that he didn't really use interviews with Hitler, right? Obviously, he didn't look at Hitler's diaries. They didn't exist. He had to rely on hearsay, which is just other people's testimony, other interviews from other higher ups in the Nazi party. And that's how they built the story. Going from this one source, comparing it to the other, finding overlaps, ensuring that stories kind of match up. And through forensic evidence of artifacts and military records, they were able to develop an actual story of what had happened here. Okay, so knowing that there are those conspiracy theories still out there, there is something that we're able to tell you today. And that is how the fraudulent Hitler diaries came to be. And that started with a guy named Conrad Kuyao. And that is spelled K-U-J-A-U. For those wondering and wanting to be impressed by my pronunciation skills as well.
2: That's why I, that's one thing I yell when I dunk on people in a basketball game. I go
0: Kuyao.
3: Kuyao. <laughs> Was our fraudster and much like are all of our fraudsters, it's how they use the environment around them to leverage people and influence people into thinking something, right? Into believing that something is real that is not real. Konrad Kuyao was born in 1938 in Saxony, which was in East Germany. Both of his parents were members of the Nazi party, and he was one of five children. But by, by the time this guy was a teenager, he was just obsessed with Nazis. Like, you and I love Transformers. This guy loved Nazis. He loved the Nazi regalia. He loved the Nazi culture. I mean, what do you do when, you're, when your kid's like, he's just really the Nazi? It's like, it's a phase. It's a phase. We hope it doesn't leave.
2: Classic baby Nazis. <laughs>
3: So in 1944, his father dies and they fall into poverty and they have to go to a refugee camp. So they're struggling to get by and he's trying to figure out what to do. And he realizes he's got a talent for forging documents. And when they resettle in Stuttgart, Germany, he forges some lunch vouchers and goes to prison for five days. Just like Anna Delvey in our previous episode... She started forging some documents just at her internship or learning the skills, rather, to forge documents at her internship. And that comes in to pay off later for her. Our man Kuow over here. Kuow. Kuow. Kuyao. Oh, my God. It's so difficult to say. Our man Kuyao here starts forging paintings and forging different pieces of art. I mean, he tried to be legit, be like a window washer. He wanted to be, He tried. he tried to be a waiter. None of that worked. What he was great at was being a Nazi enthusiast. You know, what do they always tell you when you're growing up? Do what you love. And it won't feel like work.
2: Yeah, I like this guy because he has a lot of jobs, right? But he, uh, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm in a window washer and a waiter. But I'd say what I'm really good at is being a rabid anti-Semite. <laughs> okay, so one of the things Kuya starts doing to make a living is he
3: starts smuggling in Nazi artifacts and memorabilia from East Germany into West Germany. And at that time, he went by Professor Peter Fischer. And in those days, he was able to create a pretty lucrative business on the black market in
2: West Germany. It was called Pier One Imports. (laughs) I always knew there was something wrong with that place. So here's this guy. He
3: starts bringing in these artifacts, but what is he doing? He's using his forging abilities and he's dressing it up a little bit. He's taking a little bit of ash and dirtying it up. He's using pieces of cord to put different like designs on it. He's using his own stamps to kind of create uh, items and make them look like they're more valuable than they actually are. He even adds, like, signatures here or there, and then he's selling them for all this money. He even starts doing fake Hitler paintings, which were apparently one of his passions. Okay, so how did Kuyao actually get all this done? How did he become a lucrative business? Well, if you're into the business of importing knots memorabilia, that's illegal. And there's a black market. It's not like you can just open the yellow pages, right? So a fraudulent painting is going to probably escape by because no one wants to go find an authenticator to appraise, you know, Hitler does starry night oil on canvas that you just bought from a man's basement who says that he just saved it after World War II. Okay, so let me just break this down a little bit more because it's not just like weird baseball cards here. We're talking about these were highly illegal things that were being sold on the black market. And so when World War II ended, the Nazi ideology didn't just go away and evaporate into thin air. The Allied forces had to literally exercise fascism and racism and all that stuff from the country. They had to rid German and Austrian society, culture, press, economy, judiciary, and politics of Nazi ideology. This meant prosecuting Nazis, taking former Nazis out of positions of power, and censoring Nazi memorabilia, among other things. Now, a lot of these measures put in place are still present today, like displaying a swastika. You can only do that in an approved context, like school or some educational thing. And if you don't do it in the approved context, you can get up to three years in prison. Demagoguery, the incitement of hatred against people of a certain race or religion, can even be punished with up to five years in Germany. And this includes something that's trending these days, especially in Iran, uh, denying the Holocaust. Ugh, the Ayatollah Khomeini constantly likes to say, what if we just ask the question about the Holocaust? Fucking maniacs, delusional maniacs, these people. That's all to say that if you're trading in these old Nazi uniforms and commander's possessions, that's not necessarily regulated and that probably is going to get you a lot of money on the black market.
2: Nazi memorabilia will get you a lot of money on the black market, but not the black market.
0: <laughs> I
2: just choked on my water again. <laughs> Can you imagine just going it's like go to the swap meet in downtown Brooklyn trying to sell Nazi memorabilia in the underground yeah. mall in Atlanta?
3: <laughs> You'll serve was uh, really appreciates this uh swastika
2: on 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 gold. Yeah. Uh how about this? <laughs> if you don't get your Nazi ass It's <laughs> open markets I didn't know it was going to be so hostile I don't think you're going to drive home in that Volkswagen either <laughs>
3: <laughs> Okay, so that's cool, yeah And every fraudster, every con artist needs their mark For the Hitler diaries, the mark here Is a guy that really thought he was doing something great He thought he was making breaking the the biggest story of the modern era, of the post-World War II era. His name was Gerd Heidemann, and he worked for Stern Magazine, that star in Deutsch. Stern was like the German Maxim magazine without swimsuits. 50-year-old Heidemann was like a seasoned reporter who was sort of self-assigned to the Nazi beat, specifically with an interest in war criminals. This guy was obsessed with Nazi culture. He was uh, an obsessive person. He was disorganized because he was so obsessive. And often his editors had to take all of his raw notes and everything and just give it to someone else to write the final piece. So this guy, you get a sense for where his head's at, right? The Hitler Diaries weren't the object of his research at first. I mean, this guy in general was just looking for all kinds of Nazi cultural artifacts that he could write about. Now, he came upon an assignment about a yacht called Karin II. It belonged to a Nazi friend of Hitler named Hermann Goering, who was a high-ranking Nazi official. Now, of course, the Nazi boat is named
2: Karin. <laughs> It actually calls the police on other boats.
3: Now, Heidemann sees this boat, the Karen 2, and he's so juiced. He ends up mortgaging everything he has and buys this yacht. And he's in the yacht, and it's that classic thing where you, like, blow your wad on something so big. You're like, wait a minute, but I it costs money to upkeep a 90-foot yacht. <laughs> but he loved it so much, he started making a floating museum for Goering. And this is what fucking blew me away. This guy actually ends up marrying Garing's daughter. Can you imagine? This is like this is like like a a stalker. Uh this is like the stalker in bodyguard marrying Whitney Houston's kid. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't make any fucking sense. I don't get it. But, you know, when it comes to the Nazis, uh, keep it all the family, I guess. Because the next thing you know, this guy is rubbing elbows with former Nazi generals, commanders, hosting parties. He was deep in Nazi fandom. He was so obsessed, but he wasn't delusional, it seems. He knew he couldn't just keep this huge fucking boat on a journalist's salary. So he tried to sell some of the memorabilia in the boat to a collector. Now the collector he was working with his name was Fritz Stifel. Now Stifel humors him a bit and buys a couple things on the boat from Heidemann. Although he doesn't buy the boat himself. Can you imagine it's like, "Oh, would you like would you like this uh, helmet from Nazir? "Oh, sure." Um, "Would you like this um spear?" "It's a good spear." "Okay, I'll take the I'll take the spear too." "Uh please buy the boat. Would you please would you please buy the boat?" "I'm not taking the fucking boat, guy." I'm here for a couple things.
2: I guess you could say he stifled the ultimate transaction. Yes,
3: I suppose. I suppose so. (laughs) So while these guys are doing their own bromance, anti-Semitic roadshow, Stifle mentions that he has one of Hitler's diaries. Heidemann is so excited at this point. He's heard about the Hitler diaries, but he didn't know they still or actually ever existed. He knew the plane went down, but nothing was supposedly recovered he begs Stifel to show him. And through some coaxing, he agrees. And so Stifel takes Heidemann down to his basement, past an armored door to his personal treasure trove of Nazi memorabilia. Some man cave this guy had, right? And he shows Heidemann a large bound book with the initials A-H in old English lettering on the cover. Ah. <laughs> ah. <laughs> now, Stifel said that he purchased it from a man in Stuttgart who had gotten it from a relative in East Germany. Remember, specific stories. It always fools people. Stiefel says there's more. There's actually 26 more to be exact. Heidemann is on the hook. He goes back and begins juicing his magazine that he held Hitler's actual diary. His editors look at him and they're like, you're crazy. Get the fuck out of here. Don't you have anything better to do? They don't buy into it. In fact, they actually told him to stop. And that's going to come in really funnily much later when we get to it. But that wasn't going to stop Heidemann. He goes directly to the publisher, to the guy who was in charge of the parent company of Stern Magazine. And got his blessing plus 200,000 German marks. That's more than $230,000 in today's dollars, by the way. As a budget to procure these diaries. So here we are. Heidemann is on the hook. He sees the Hitler diary. He held it in his hand. He's got a relationship with the Nazi community. He feels like he's rubbed elbows with the right people. He meets the right collector through this community. He holds the diary in his hands. And now he even has permission to go find the rest of these diaries from the parent company of his magazine. This has got to be exciting for him. And he pulls out all the stops to find out who was that original owner in Stuttgart that Stifle was talking about? He leverages that community. He talks to the Nazi uh, friends that he made at these parties. He talks to his wife's family members. All of these people are going to help him find the owner. To really get this guy out of the shadows, he starts offering 2 million marks. It's about $600,000 for the diaries. And that... Is how Heidemann eventually meets Kuyao.
0: Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.
1: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories
3: Gets this guy's name. It's Fischer, and we all know who Fischer is. He's in Stuttgart, and Fischer is our man, Konrad Kuyao. And at that time, he was making a killing with this Nazi memorabilia and selling it to saps like Fritz Stiefel. So Stiefel, of course, doesn't realize that forging Hitler's diaries is to Kuyao what yoga is to white woman. A glorious pastime. He thinks he's doing his due diligence when he gets his first diary, and he even goes as far as to get it authenticated. I actually found a clip from the BBC of Kuyao actually talking about how passionate he was and why he did the first Hitler Diary. <laughs>
2: I just felt like doing it. I did it the same way as I did my art forgeries. It was only about putting myself into the personality of the original author. I didn't even care about what was typical and, for example, if it was covered with plastic or not. It didn't matter to me.
3: So even though this was like his practice round stifle, didn't want to be taken for a ride. He got an expert on Hitler's writing to look at the diary to verify it. Now, this guy was August Prisak, and he was an authority on Nazi art since he had been the Nazi art historian from 1935 to 1939. This fucking idiot declared it authentic. Imagine you got a hard on for Hitler. Someone comes up to you and you're like, "Oh, I
2: got some more Hitler stuff." And he's like, "Ah, oh,
3: absolutely! It's so real."
2: I just like it that the uh, that the Nazi Party is putting out a call for applications for art historians. Like they have like the Chronicle of Higher Education. They're like, "On our path to world dominance, we're going to need somebody to really chronicle our art history." <laughs> exactly. But get this, Justin, though, they were
3: really serious, but that's what they almost had, dil- had diluted themselves of the idea that they were doing it. And Presack calls another guy from Stuttgart University and this guy authenticates it as well. Now, it's good. To, it's important to note that how they were authenticating it was still not forensic analysis. They were just using handwriting and historical documents to compare it. But one point, an item from Stiefel's collection is used in a history book about Hitler's writings. Of course, where did that artifact come from? It was a Kuyao forgery. And so when another historian, and this is what happens, Justin, you know this, historians peer review everything, right? They look at each other's work and they compare and they say, oh, that doesn't look right. This doesn't look right. Another historian looked at this book and said, hey, that poem looks like shit. And the historian agreed that it was a forgery. And he went back to stifles like, what the fuck's going on here? But... Here's where your own reality distortion field gets in the way. Heidemann finds out about this and is like, "Hey, man, what's going on? Uh, well, you know, this was supposed to be real. This this poem is is bullshit." And Kuyao just explains that after the plane crash, peasants retrieved the trunks, and his brother got it from them and gave it to him. He, he he was stuck with the forgery himself. Everyone loses. What a shame. It wasn't my fault. I just i i got the stuff from somebody else. It wasn't me. And Heidemann was like, oh, okay. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Totally fine. So by this point, the head of the publishing company has committed millions of, of German marks to this project. And they're finally ready to bring in the editors. Now, remember, the editors the whole time were like, Heidemann, you're wasting your fucking time. You're a lunatic. Stop it. But now, these guys are just... They're bringing in... They get sworn to secrecy. And they're now wondering if they even have the right to publish it, because they want to publish it now. They're really into it. Could Hitler have a copyright in this work? Could he pass it down to his heirs? So Heidemann finds out that the Hitler estate was still getting royalties from the Mein Kampf, which is, blows my fucking mind completely, and his estate was run by a lawyer, And so, by the way, everyone knows, or if you don't know, that's fine. An estate is just basically where a rich person puts all of their wealth, right? So you have, like, someone, usually a lawyer or a trusted advisor, run the estate, especially after you pass away. And so Heidemann manages to befriend this lawyer and strikes a deal with the estate for 20,000 marks that gave Heidemann exclusive rights to any unpublished original works of Adolf Hitler. Think about that for a second. This guy went and bought the rights to something completely fake, paid for it, but in his head, he thinks, this is going to be bigger than Mein Kampf. I've got the personal, subconscious narrative of Hitler in book form. Okay, so these diaries are wildly fake, and I don't understand how people could have even thought they were real. From that same little mini-doc, I found some excerpts where they read portions of the fake diaries. And so I'll play uh, a couple for you here.
2: 1st of February. Formulated some new regulations. 9th of February. Opening ceremony of the Olympic Games in Berlin. I couldn't take part in it. My stomach was unable to accept anything other than my medicine. (laughs) what the
3: fuck what the but you know if you think I guess that doesn't that sounds like someone something like uh, someone would write in their diary but like why like a megalomaniac like Hitler would write that in his diary it's tough to say
2: opening of the Berlin Olympics I'm having second thoughts about my thesis about the inherent superiority of the German athlete apparently this negro fellow named Jesse Owens is uh (laughs) Doing really, really well.
3: <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> and here's another one. Here's
2: another one on Goebbels. Little Goebbels was chasing after the skirts today. Tomorrow I'll make a regulation that I won't tolerate any more affairs in the life of my close colleagues and leading individuals of the party. It's a Gerbils. on these ladies. glass. <laughs> Classic Goebbels. You know, Goebbels had game. You know, he goes, girl, let me spit some propaganda at you. Oh, my God.
3: So here we are. Heidemann has these exclusive rights to all these hilariously written diaries that are not from Hitler, that Kuyao has written himself, and that Heidemann thinks are authentic. And now the next step, this just keeps escalating. Stern Publishing is ready... To start flexing and planning the release of these. They want to make a big splash and they want to syndicate the publication to other magazines. And now that just means they'll send the story and have it printed in other places like the New York Times or Newsweek or any place like that.
2: Ebony Jet, Essence, you know. The typical places
3: you would you would publish Hitler's diaries. But here's, here's the crazy thing. To do a deal like this, you still have to authenticate the documents. Every side had to authenticate the documents. Okay, here's something to keep in mind about how this authentication process really started to snowball. When they were all these historians were coming in and looking at the handwriting documents, the Stern Publishing people gave just a few pages to uh, the authenticators to look at, and these authenticators used actual previously authenticated documents to compare and contrast. Of course, right? That makes a lot of sense. You got to make sure that something is real. You compare it to something you know is real. (laughs) The the pre-authenticated documents that they were using to authenticate the Hitler diaries were forgeries from Kuyao. Kuyao had gotten into the pre-authenticated stuff to the point where all the historians are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll just compare it to these things these kuya was in he accepted the entire fucking process i mean it got to the point where our boy trevor roper lord (laughs) Thackeray, the premier hitler expert himself now comes in and evaluates it based on the handwriting and other reference documents now he was a little skeptical at first but he gets excited and he says this is it these are authentic and the Stern magazine obviously wanted to, like, get him to do a quote about it. And they got, they had to, like, negotiate a quote that they could publish in their magazine about the diaries of what Lord Dacre was saying. And they settled on this. The most important historical discovery of the decade and a scoop of Watergate proportions. <laughs> Because at that time, Watergate was it, man. This is bigger than Watergate.
2: Can you imagine? This is bigger than a sitting president. We have uh, Hitler's thoughts about his lunch <laughs> exactly. in 1934.
1: Exactly.
3: Are there any other points in history where where this kind of thing happened, where the pre-authenticated
2: documents were actually the
3: forgeries as well and it just ruined, it poisoned the entire tree?
2: I don't know if it poisons the entire tree, but I'd say uh, the... The narrative, uh, the the slave narrative of Equiano, he claims that he remembers his birth in Africa, and a historian named Vincent Coretta actually has some evidence that uh, claims that Equiano was actually born in South Carolina. So the idea is, right, as a slave narrative, it's more compelling if Equiano was born in Africa and taken on the Middle Passage rather than being born in the Americas. So that would be an example of how people maybe are more willing to it was purposely altered uh, because the story, it made the story more compelling. So that would be an example of a, a historical story that was purposely altered so it could make the overall narrative more compelling. I mean, that's kind of
3: what these guys were doing. They, they were uh, addicted to this narrative that these diaries existed. So the publishers in this case, the people who wanted to syndicate this, there were two big competitors for Hitler's diaries, for the publishing rights to Hitler's diaries. And that was the Sunday Times and Newsweek. Oh, and by the way, the Sunday Times, who owns the Sunday Times? Rupert fucking Murdoch. So it's a head-to-head, and they are slanging experts at this thing to see who's going to call it authentic, make sure that this big investment they're going to make is real. Murdoch and the Sunday Times had hired Roper, Lord Daiquiri, whose book is the definitive work on the end of Hitler's life. I mean, Newsweek sends this University of North Carolina guy, Gerhard Weinberg, who was born a German Jew, and Weinberg had actually fled Nazi Germany when he was 12 and went on to become one of the most foremost scholars on the Third Reich and Nazi monumental history.
0: Look around, you can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail.
1: For the love of home.
3: So Gerhard comes in and he's very skeptical. He can't get a good sense from some of the documents. He's like, I don't, I don't see the writing, it doesn't make sense. The the handwriting, it's not right. But it was one passage out of Hitler's diary that turned him, which is I don't understand how this possibly could have worked. But here's the passage: it was about Hitler meeting Britain's Neville Chamberlain. And Hitler in his diaries, had praise for Chamberlain as a negotiator, something that Weinberg firmly believed. Talk about self-fulfilling prophecy here. That, coupled with Hitler signing every one of the diary pages at the bottom, convinced Weinberg that the diaries were authentic. He said, no one in their right mind would attempt to forge Hitler's
2: signature hundreds of times and think they'd get away with it by fooling experts like me, sir. Yeah, it's hilarious. It's the classic fraudster technique of putting so much information out there that people don't scrutinize it.
3: Yeah, if you just like, this is too absurd, who would possibly do something like this? It was the scale of the forgery that put this guy over the edge. He couldn't do it. So now both Newsweek and Murdoch were satisfied. And what's great here is that the publishers at Stern, the editors even, were all on board. Everyone would buy into this. I mean, Heidemann must be just on cloud nine. None of them, though, to this point, okay, had done any forensic analysis. Now I get it. It's a long time ago. It's like the you know the early '80s. You may not have, for instance, it's not like CSI Miami was on Five Nights a Week. Okay, like this is a thing. But still, I mean, millions of dollars. Hitler's diaries. You can't get a scientist involved. Later, when asked about the vetting process of the diaries, one of the editors in chief at, at Stern, Peter Koch, yes, that's how you say it, said when that when the magazine vetted the diaries. He didn't actually know what scientific methods had been used to do so. They didn't tell us, he said. He said the crime lab didn't do ink tests because we were told that ink tests would prove nothing. It's too easy to make ink seem old. And we actually have a quick clip of Peter talking about this
2: as well from the BBC. Can we play a clip of uh, the cock, please? (laughs) Coming up, coming up, cocks, coming up. We showed it to many experts in handwriting and historical experts, and they all were convinced, totally convinced, that's genuine. There were no doubts at all.
0: That wasn't quite true. There were some doubts. Just to be clear, it is Koch, not Koch.
3: They say cock in the BBC thing. They say Koch. They say Koch?
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, follow your bliss, but...
3: Thank you, Hazel. Peter <laughs> Koch. All right, we got to do this. Germany's going to be really pissed at us for butchering all of these names. Uh, but thank you, Hazel, for that. Who do career. you
2: think's the the uh, more reputable expert? Uh, Peter Koch or um, Dick Wang?
0: <laughs> you guys, we're trying to broaden our listenership, not pigeonhole ourselves to just the teenage demographic. <laughs> I'm cutting all of this in edit.
3: <laughs> oh, boy. We're a highbrow kind of show here.
2: Raw and uncircumcised comedy on fraudsters. Oh my God.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I give up.
3: So now these things are ready to go. They've got the Sunday Times. They've got Newsweek. They've got a global distribution network to publish Hitler's diaries. But finally, in West Germany, the official German Bundesarchive had brought in Dr. Arnold Rents. Finally, someone who sweet Christ, finally was able to do some forensic analysis. So he said within a very short amount of time, he said the pages did not contain the special whitening substance used in paper before World War II. And the documents that he saw had whitening substance that was created post-1945. Okay, so now things are starting to unravel and fast. Another World War II historian, this time a Nazi sympathizer named David Irving, comes out against the authenticity of these diaries completely. He even gets a hold of copies of Kuyao's diaries and pages in the diary that Kuyao gave
2: to Fritz Steifel. And that historian really he issued a really damning statement. He said, Look, now I may be a supporter of the Third Reich, one of the most disgraceful governments in the history of mankind. But let me tell you something. I'm no (laughs) forgerer. You know, anybody that would anybody that would be dishonest is a scumbag, in my opinion. Now let me tell you something. You can try to wipe out all the inferior races of the world. But don't
3: lie about it. Yeah, don't you
2: lie. (laughs) And so the Stern group Is still
3: pressing on, though, even though they just found out through forensic analysis that this diary is a fraud and they have a press conference to announce the diaries. And the Stern editor stands up and he says, I am 100 percent convinced that Hitler wrote every single word in those books. And now David Irving shows up. Kanye style grabs the mic and goes off and starts yelling. How could Hitler have written an entry on the day and the day after the July bomb plot to kill him when his right arm and hand were so badly injured that he had to shake hands with his left hand? That shit. That was like Encyclopedia Brown solving a mystery, man. That shit was like <laughs> the Nancy Drill, being like, well, his right hand was broken. How could he write with it?
2: They <laughs> couldn't even throw the fascist salute with his good hand, it was so burned.
3: <laughs> but Stern goes ahead with the fucking publication. They don't care. Murdoch goes ahead with the publication through the Sunday Times. Newsweek goes ahead with the publication. None of these guys cared. And after this Nancy Drew came out, the historian Lord Dacre admitted to the folks at the Sunday Times to have a jump the gun on the conclusions of the authenticity of the diaries. And Rupert Murdoch is even quoted as saying, fuck Lord Dacre. <laughs> just keep it moving. He went on to even say when they asked him about, you know, don't you care that you just published all of these forgeries? It's just lies. And he said, we are in the entertainment business. Circulation went up and it stayed up. We didn't lose money or anything like that. So guys, this is how stuff gets into the culture. This is how stuff stays with us. This is how conspiracy theories get entrenched. And this is how rich guys stay rich and even get even more rich. Circulation for the Sunday Times spike. Stern circulation spiked. Everyone got paid. Now, there are reports that Stern had to like do very serious reporting afterward because they, the trust was eroded, but I'm sure they had to do all that work from the extra beach house that they all got to buy because of the money they made off this. So of course, Germany had to play referee here. The Institute Bundesarchive, the federal archive of Germany that had kind of screwed up earlier had to step in and set the record straight one way or the other. And finally, this time, they were going to use forensic analysis. And afterwards, the Stern people were confused. They still really thought that they had the real deal. And they actually thought they had the real diaries to the point where they gave the Bundesarchiv more diaries. They were just like, you no, know, here, no, these, I don't know what you're talking about, these are real. Turns out the cords on the cover that we kind of mentioned before, uh, that were on several of the diaries, were synthetic polyester and viscous fibers that were manufactured after the war. And then they measured the amount of chlorine in the ink. The scientists were able to determine that the ink used in one of the diaries was only two years old. And in another one of the diaries, they were one year old. You know why? Because Kuyao was writing these fucking diaries as fast as he possibly could to get them to hide them in to sell these fucking things. And forget forensics. Now that they dived into the content, they found that wording actually closely matched this compilation of Hitler's speeches and proclamations from a book edited by this guy, Max Demarius. When nothing occurred on a given day as reported by Demarius, nothing appeared in the diaries. Where Damaris recorded an error, the same error got reproduced in the diaries. Now, Justin, I want to go to you on this because you're on the uh like the the integrity and ethics committee at your school, right? Isn't this a clear sign when someone's cheating, they copy the same wrong answers?
2: Yes, I would say that this is an example of plagiarism. <laughs>
3: And the most glaring error in one of the diaries was copied from DeMaris was a telegram from General Ritter von Epp to Hitler congratulating him on the 50th anniversary of his enlistment in the German army. The telegram was actually sent by Hitler to von Epp rather than the other way around. Kuyao had it reversed, just a simple error. But if you're trying to... Forge Hitler's diaries—you can't
2: do it. Yeah, and also weird when they use time inappropriate language, such as when Hitler said, "Operation Barbarossa is lit." (laughs) So, Newsweek, by the way, is furious,
3: and they send in another guy, Kenneth Rendo. They're like, "Tell us what fucking happened. How did it get down this far? How did we get to this point where we actually accepted these authenticated documents?" First, Kenneth does some chemical tests and they fail. He does three different tests. They all fail. And he goes back to the original authentication that they did at the Bundesarchive way back at the beginning. Remember, they used Kuyao's forged documents to authenticate the Hitler diaries. This guy, Kenneth Rendell, got in there and he was able to actually say, hey, guys, you were fucked from the beginning the documents you used were all forgeries. And that is how that fucking happened. That's how a little forgery can grow into this international forgery in just a few little moments. You know, it's post-World War II and Germany is doing what it can to recover from this atrocity that they hosted in their country. And... I can only imagine what it does to the psyche of a society or of a country when they get they all get fooled by something like this. I guess they also it must also bring out the fact that there are still so many people that sympathize with the way things used to be there. What do you think?
2: So it's funny because this coincides with a lot of the momentum growing for talking about the Holocaust. So there's kind of a couple things to consider. Uh, one of them, ironically, is this weird detour where in the United States we made a mini series called Holocaust, which had Meryl Streep and James Woods in it. Uh, where it caused a debate about the Holocaust in Germany. And uh, historians responded to this. There was a lot of like historical talk about the nature of the Holocaust. And then Germans had to deal with that in that way. And then it was also with German reunification happening from 89 to 90. How, did you, uh, how would you work those things in the national curriculum? How do you reconcile narratives of Nazi Germany that were being taught in East Germany? And how was it being taught in West Germany? So it's right in the period where there's all this interest in World War II and Holocaust memory, which eventually is going to lead to we're going to take kids to Holocaust sites uh, and we're going to have it as a mandatory part of the curriculum for, I think, like 10th and 12th graders.
3: It's interesting that like Germany, unlike, you know, how America handles its own atrocities, Chose to confront it kind of head on and try to incorporate it into the education system. Whereas we kind of have, you know, when we talk about slavery in America, we have like the bubblegum advertising version of the founding fathers and slavery and that entire area of American history.
2: Yeah, you find it too in places where they're forced to take responsibility for whatever reasons, right? Yeah. Uh, Uh, indigenous history would be, uh, another example when you're talking about slavery in the United States. Uh, ironically, if you go to South Africa, right, it's like, there's the apartheid museum, uh, to where it's like, this is what happened. It's all on record. They had the truth and reconciliation commission. People had to testify. They had to say what they did. They had to confront their victims. You know, you saw other initiatives like that in like Liberia. And I think Rwanda also had that, uh, and we did not have that in the United States. In fact, we put up Confederate monuments during Jim Crow, and still 30% maybe of the American population is willing to believe things like that the Civil War was actually not about slavery, right? They'll say states' rights or something like that, you know. And there's something to be said about not educating people at a
3: young enough age so that they, you know, the programming changes, right? <laughs> it's like we have this like have this like cookie cutter Disney model of what, you know, America's story Is And the Germans, they're just like, no, there's no way to, there's no way to put lipstick on this pig. We're going to have to just take this thing head on.
2: Well, the good thing is there was a historian that put out a book called Hitler's willing executioners, right? That talked about how everyday Germans participated in the Holocaust in ways that allow that didn't allow people to avoid the responsibility the way we do in the United States. Like we have kind of the remember the Titans, like version of racism where it's just like three really mean racist people yelling and that's what racism becomes it's not like a systemic thing that everybody participates in because of personal interest or whatever or or just following orders right hitler's willing willing executioner kind of throws that out of the water it's just like random middle-aged guys are shooting jews in like the ukraine and then throwing their bodies down or or uh, think about for to even to run a concentration camp you have to have just like guards. You know what I mean? You have to have yeah. processing people. You have to have train conductors. You have to have all of these people that are particip- you have to have scientists, right? It's all, all of these people are participating in these systems.
3: So, coming out of this, you know, Hitler diary scandal, it's got to be a total cultural mind fuck for all of these people to to confront this and be like, "Well, I guess everyone's lying and profiting off Nazi memorabilia again." And, you know, luckily, The aftermath of all of this was not people just going on with their lives. You know, Stern Magazine started chopping heads. All but one of the editors-in-chief resigned in shame. And both uh, Heidemann and Kuyao ended up in prison. But what's funny, though, is that Heidemann looks like an ass because he's the mark. He insists that these were real. He says he was deceived by Kuyao. But get this. You know, Heidemann was paying to get these diaries. (laughs) <laughs> you know, he had he had spent nine million marks that Stern gave him to get the diaries, but Kuyao says he only got three million. And so even pocketed the six million. So, like any good mark, they're not completely absolved. They are guilty and brought in by their own greed. And, you know, some people today still believe that it was like an American CIA plot to do this. Some claim that that they, the diaries are still real. Some said the East Germans made them to like reignite the excitement for the neo-Nazis. You know, some say that, some said that the East Germans made them to re- reignite the ex- excitement for the neo-Nazi groups. But at the end of the day, Heidemann got four years and eight months because he didn't admit that he was a liar. Kuyau only got four years and six months. And you'd think that, Heidemann we got hosed in this situation, but during the trial, Kuyao couldn't keep his mouth shut. And at first, people loved it. He was like this guy that just was out and about, talking, saying all this stuff. People wanted to get copies of his forged paintings uh, uh, that were Hitler forgeries. He was a cult icon, a little popular guy within Germany at that time. But while he was in prison, he complained about the cords that were on the diary. And that Heidemann screwed up. Heidemann put those cords on there. And that Kuya, he he would have never been so stupid. I would have never been so stupid to use those those s- synthetic polyester cords. Well, genius. Fritz Steifel comes back and shows the diary. And it actually has the cords that Kuya gave him. That never went to Heidemann. Those cords are what got Heidemann out of prison within four months. Heidemann... Ended up not having the best of when it was revealed he was formerly a member of the Stasi, the notorious East German secret police. Kuyao, still a Nazi sympathizer, runs for mayor of Stuttgart years later and loses, of course. Just this story is insane, man. And like it's so different than the stuff that we've been doing already with like the kind of like hard financial crimes and stuff that a fraud of this scale it kind of gets into the bones of society. Like the story of these Hitler diaries is with us now forever. Part of me wishes I could say that this is the only Nazi episode that we're going to be doing. But next week, we are actually going to take this a step further and talk about something more into the occult side of things. Still a fraud and still a fraudster. But it's around the spear of destiny. And one of the things that's going to distinguish both of these is that in this case, you know, people went to prison. In next week, nobody went to prison and a guy just wrote a fake book and ended up getting somewhat popular on it. And remember, all of our other cases here, some of them did go to prison. Some of them didn't go to prison. A lot of times fraudsters are able to get away. So it's really nice to see a little bit of justice being served. So... Come back next week. We're going to have a very special guest join us. I think you're going to like him. It's Heinrich Himmler. Yeah. (laughs) So come back next week for more slightly uncomfortable Nazi jokes. A special guest that I know you all will love. And as always, thank you, Hazel Bryan, our wonderful producer. Thank you, Marie Anderson, our amazing editor. Justin (laughs) at gmail.com. I'm at Cena now. Justin, any parting thoughts?
2: No, don't leave my email address on there. (laughs) No, uh, justinwilliamscomedy.com. Justin Williams. You can contact me through the anonymous contact form. (laughs) Don't give my email. (laughs) Okay, we're going to bleep the email.
3: Mm. (laughs) All right, guys. This has been a production of Last Podcast Network and Zero
2: Cool Media. We'll see you next time.